Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. What is happening, my friend? Welcome to the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest is WSOP bracelet winner and high-stakes cash pro Chase Bianchi. Despite focusing mainly on cash games, Chase has racked up an impressive 870K in MTT caches, including his crown jewel, a gold medal finish in a 1K no-limit hold'em tourney at the 2016 WSOP. Chase and I's conversation chronicles his journey from being a poker dealer and going broke time and time again early on in his career, to finding his footing and regularly battling at the biggest stakes his casino offers. In today's episode, you'll also learn why bigger stakes does not necessarily mean tougher games, why even the crushers of live cash games are struggling through COVID, why aggressive bankroll management early in your poker career is not necessarily a bad thing, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you high stakes live cash game crusher, Chase Bianchi. Chase, good afternoon, sir. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. As I normally do with the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast, I want to start out by asking you to tell me the story. How did you get involved with playing cards? Mm. So kind of typical. I, I got into it in high school, like money, post moneymaker boom, playing with my baseball teammates on the junior varsity baseball team. And it was probably like my sophomore year, maybe freshman year. I think it was my sophomore year, and uh, anyway, we, we were playing, and we were playing over the summer, and the, I kind of had a natural knack for it, picked it up pretty easily, and the kids' moms would joke that I had a summer job because I'd always beat them out of our $5, you know, <laughs> tournaments. So, right. Uh, so that got me into it, and then, uh, yeah, I just took off from there. When you say you had a knack for it, what do you mean by that? Well, I think I just took it more seriously is pretty much what it came down to, but um, yeah, I actually thought about like a little bit of strategy of, oh, I should bet my draws and my good hands, which was like, you know, do aggressive things back then and you win was pretty much the name of the game. Right. And then me and me and another guy read a book and that was like game changing. What book? Uh, I think we, that was back way back in the day. It might've been super system was one of the very first ones I read. That was probably it. Yeah, me too. I read Super System, and the biggest takeaway from Super System for me was just basically be aggressive. It was yeah, like exactly okay, let's be be more aggressive. Like you can win hands by making people fold, and that concept for whatever reason totally resonated with me. I, I was never the big on like oh, I can just wait for a good hand and then beat them when they have a worse hand. Mm -hmm. My nature is like, oh, I can make people fold? This is amazing. I want to learn how to do that. One of the most basic concepts I tell people that are total uh, beginners is when you bet, there's two ways to win. You make them fold or you have the best hand. When you're calling, there's one way to win. You have the best hand. Exactly. It's a very basic concept, but it's actually really important. For sure. And one of the... It sounds, it's so primitive now looking back, but you know, me and my friends would discuss poker and I would always just say like your hand only matters at showdown. Like that's the only time that your hand actually matters. If you make them fold anytime before showdown, then we can still win. Right. Which obviously some people can take it to an extreme where uh, they just want to. Not until you get into the advanced work that that stuff starts to matter more. And it's really like small differences but yeah uh, totally that makes sense for sure when when people start believing that they win a hand when they make somebody fold then they're just going to go out of their way to try to quote unquote win every single hand that they play and that's gonna it's not Mm -hmm. gonna do good things overall but um going back to playing these you know beating your baseball buddies out of five bucks 
a pop. When did you start really, you know, investing time playing online or was it live? What did that look like? Yeah. So then I kind of hopped into online a little bit and, uh, it's funny, good timing. Uh, Irene Carey posted on Twitter recently, like what's your biggest like run up of a bankroll. And I remember it was my, uh, my junior year in high school playing online on the old Doyle's room back when that was a thing. And my dad let me deposit 50 bucks online and I ran that 50 bucks up on my like off blocks and on my lunch periods, I would go home and I would play. And I ran that 50 bucks up to 7,000. I would drew like 200 of it and then torch, <laughs> torch the rest in one session of 1020 no limit. <laughs> so uh, you four extra money. Overall. Right, yeah. Yeah. I was a net winner. Net and winner. And of course, $7,000 when you're a junior in high school, that's huge. What was the, what was the thought? playing the 2k you're just going to run it all the way up to millions right of course i was like how can i be beat yeah poker was so easy back then you could just run it up run it down for sure i i do think that like there is a misnomer that i see written it's like oh if i would have played poker in the golden age i would have just made millions and mm-hmm. it wasn't that easy right because like if we knew what we knew now then maybe but nobody knew their head from a hole in the ground back then. Like I remember like the first time watching like a card runners video with Brian Townsend and he's playing like one K no limit and he just gets it in with like a flush drawn over cards. And he's like, yeah, this hand's just going to be fine to just like bet three bet, rip it. I have enough equity. And I remember watching it like, Oh shit, that's pretty awesome. Like we're just Mm -hmm. like looking at fold equity and our actual equity versus the hands we get called. Like, Oh, this is great. And I mean, yeah. So basically what I'm saying is nobody knew their head from a hole in the ground <laughs> back then. Yeah, totally. You know, time machines aren't real. So when you, when you say, Oh, the games are so good back, the games were good because you weren't that good. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. in my opinion, the games are still really good in a lot of places. And like, yep. depending on your skill level, you can find up to 200, no limit. I feel like the games are just good online and live. They're going to be good all the way up. <laughs> pretty much all the way up to the top of much all the way up, publicly yeah. spread games. So you dust off, you go broke. Mm-hmm. What happened next? Yeah. So, I mean, poker was always something I did and enjoyed. Um, but it wasn't until I, uh, I, went, I got a baseball scholarship that I dropped out of and uh, moved to wa- the state of Washington where the gambling age was 18. And I started working in casinos and really got my, uh, my feet wet in the live scene and working at casinos and playing and uh, kind of bounced back and forth from working uh, as a dealer. And then I would, you know, I'd be playing and I'd run up a bankroll and I'd be like, guys, take me off schedule. I'm just playing cards right now. And then I'd go broke and I'd get my job back, you know? So I kind of bounced back and forth and I was young and I had like no expenses, no responsibilities. Sure. So it's kind of that peak time to just like bankroll build and go, go for it. Typical, um, typical yeah. dealer, dealer behavior. Um, yeah, yeah. So I do want to go back though with you dusting that first roll. Cause I'm sure like, mm-hmm. as you're building it up, you're telling people, right. You're telling your friends how you're doing. What was, mm-hmm. how did you feel when the account hits zero? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty demoralizing. Um, I'm, I'm sure, especially right now with, they're not really being poker. A lot of people are kind of feeling that as we're, especially the pros is we're like little to no income right now. We're just like watching our bankrolls get depleted. It can be pretty demoralizing. For sure. Um, Yeah. You kind of just got to step back and be humble and take the lick and realize, you know, like, Oh, I overextended myself or maybe I need to do something else right now. Exactly. Like has that lack of risk aversion, is that a constant kind of throughout your poker career as far as I guess now you have more responsibilities, but especially early on where it's like, okay, I'm going to take my shot at 2k no limit and Mm -hmm. dust off my three buy-in. So I'm going to save up money as a dealer and then I'm going to dust my bankroll and then just try again. Have you always had that sort of lack of risk aversion? Yeah, especially when I was young, especially before I was married, I got married in uh, 2013 and, but before then, man, it didn't, yeah, it didn't matter. Like there's nothing I was really saving for. Whereas now I have a family and like, okay, I want to provide, I want to have a legacy. I want my kids to be cared for. Um, but before that I was, I, yeah, I was pretty aggressive and I'm still like 
on the aggressive side of bankroll management, I think not enough people take shots. I think shot taking is underdone in a lot of cases, at least in like these like training sites and the way people advocate for it or yes. against it. Yes, I agree. This something that we talk about on the show with multiple guests is just the lack mm-hmm. of lack of shot taking and like trying to grind it up from the micros at 10 and L and have to have like a hundred buy-ins drives me literally insane that this is the, the common wisdom when it comes to building a bankroll. Right. Especially for a lot of people that aren't relying on that money. You know, if you're, if you're truly a pro and that's your only income, you do have to protect it a little more, but even so being able to move up in stakes is a big deal. You know, that's a lot more hourly. That's a lot more income. It's like the upside is pretty big of shot taking. So I've, I've been on the aggressive side, but tamed it back a lot when I got married and had responsibilities and now kids. So, yeah. What would you say being on the aggressive side? What does that look like for you? Um, so the local game is like, it's not running anymore, but like a 10, 20, no limit with a 5k max buy-in. Um, you know, a lot of these traditional or more conservative people would say, oh, you need like 200,000 to buy, to play in that game regularly. It's like, yeah, maybe if you're playing that every single day, blah, blah, blah. But like, if you're just shot taking that every once in a while and you've got $80,000 bankroll, even like a 50K bankroll in the game's really good. Sure, put a 5K bullet in. Like, you know, if the game's really good, you're going to be, that 5K bullet's worth a lot of money. Exactly, um, yep. We, so, yeah, taking shots when the game is prime is hardly ever a bad decision. You really have to be overextending yourself to make a bad decision. Yeah, like, we all, we, as human beings, we're always looking on the negative side of the outcomes. That's what we're always worried about. And we don't think enough about, you know, the run good is real too, right? You can take one bullet into a really good game. And statistically, you're supposed to win money. Like it's supposed to be a profitable venture. And if you run good, you can break off four or five buy-ins in a night. And all of a sudden, your 50K bankroll is now 70K or 75K. And the upside, like you said, of moving up stakes, it's the only way to exponentially increase your hourly rate. You either put in tons of volume, which if you're a live grinder, you're not going to do, or you just try to play the biggest stakes you can play and try to shot take and move up stakes super aggressively. Like that's the only way that you can exponentially make more money per hour. Yeah. And I think there's, uh, for some players, a misconception that like the big games are just full of these killers. (laughs) Right. And there's sometimes not that much of a difference between a 5-10 game and a 2-5 game or a 10-20 game and a 5-10 game. Sometimes they're easier. Yeah, yeah. A lot of times the bigger games are going because, you know, there's naturally going to be a couple of the best players in the room that are playing in that game, but the game is running a lot of times because there's one of the worst players in the room in that game, so. For sure. It's like, uh, it's a barrier to entry, right? If you're waiting till you have a $200,000 bankroll to play 10-20, and that's what a lot of like five ten grinders are doing. Well, naturally, they're not going to be playing the bigger game. So, who is people with a lot of disposable income who show up to the casino randomly and just want to torch five or ten thousand bucks, right? And then the crushers, like you said, the, the top of the food chain guys in the casino, they're going to be in that game too. But like, I can't tell you the amount of times I've been in LA playing ten twenty no limit at three in the morning, and some random human that I never see again for the rest of my life just drops in, loses five or 10 K and then just disappears into the night. It just, you know, it happens. It see, it, it seems yeah. like it shouldn't happen when you're grinding like the two five, but I can absolutely attest it does happen. Yeah, for sure. So aggressively the 10 20, is that the biggest game that spread in your uh, it's the biggest consistent game. There is a the twenty five fifty will occasionally go. It went a lot more around when the encore in Boston opened mm-hmm. for the first couple months. It was going quite a bit, but it's probably like once a month ish, a couple times a month. So, how did you get from dealer going broke to like playing the ten twenty live or playing bigger stakes online? What did that progression look like? Um, so it looked like me playing a lot of like 
I would, I would save up a buy-in for two, five, no limit. And I'd go like once a week and I'd have my like one buy-in a week that I put in the two, five, no limit game. And you know, one, one week I'd run it up and I'd be like, Oh, I got a couple buy-ins and I'd run it up. And I think one really important thing if you're building a bankroll is keep it separate. Don't dip into it. Don't buy a new pair of shoes out of your poker bankroll. Right. If you want to build a role, build it, man. Just set it aside. Have it be its own thing. Um, so naturally you go on a good run, you go on a good run. And I remember, I remember it started with this two, five session where this guy was just blasting off and I won like 3,500 in a two, five game. And I was like, boom, bankroll. And of course I was young and dumb. So I was like, Oh, five ten game looks good today. So, <laughs> right. A thousand in there. And I, you know, I dusted that first little run up, but there's a lot of, lot of little run ups there. And as I, I was pretty like we were talking about aggressive with my bankroll and I, I had a little run up in five tens. Now I've got like 25 K 30 K getting some experience playing with some better players. Um, And you know, you just kind of, I kind of cut my teeth and eventually you kind of stick, you stick to the buy-in level that you're trying to go for. And um, you know, there's some wisdom there of knowing when to rein it in and be like, okay, I need to go back and regroup at two five. Um, or I need to really like you know, press it in this five ten. Like, okay, I'm stuck to buying in the five ten, but the game's really good. You know, so it's, it's hard. And I would say bankroll questions are so dependent on like what's your situation, what's your goal in poker, or do you have like a family that this is going to impact? Uh, so it's really hard to talk about bankroll stuff without that in mind. But for sure, I do for, like. If your if your hourly rate is less than I would say like minimum wage and you have no responsibilities, like because right. you're playing the micros, just don't play the micros. <laughs> just put back money every month and start at like fifty or a hundred in L, um, because it, it just never makes sense to me. Like to learn at a stake that's not going to be valuable to you when you move up anyway. You're basically just wasting a lot of time and energy. And I, I think the overwhelming fear is just, you know, it's risk aversion. People want to be risk averse and they're kind of using that, using grinding it up, like as the excuse that allows them to be more risk averse. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, I went about it the hard way. I, I just went broke a lot, honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a, that is a much harder way to go about it. It's a much more painful way, but yeah. I would rather actually go about it your way then toil around at the micros all day long um, and never really take a shot, right? And just kind of eventually die out because it's it, it's not fun. You're not making enough money per hour and you're not really learning a ton. Was there anything, like going back, at, looking at your experience, knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently while you were taking these shots as far as you know, mentorship, getting wisdom? Um, how would you approach it with the lens in which you look at poker now? I think I probably would have gotten some like coaching a little earlier. I, I really, even to this day, I have done very little coaching, gotten very little coaching, and it's probably to my detriment and more a function of my pride than anything else. Sure. Um, but I think that's something that I haven't valued that I pro- I wish I would have earlier and. And I think it would have helped me, like, instead of having these big spikes, it would have kind of evened my trajectory a little bit. Agree. I mean, just think about what you know, right? Like, if, as, a, as somebody who has been in the game for a long time, like, let's just imagine that you are talking to your previous self as a coach. What would your advice be? Yeah, I mean, I probably would have talked about a lot of this bankroll stuff, but um, a lot of mental game stuff. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of really good instructors that could just plug some gaping holes in my game, even now, but especially back then. That um, you're just you're, your your biggest leaks are leaking a lot for every player. You know, so having someone be able to plug a, a big leak is it's a big deal. So so plugging some of those big leaks, like I know I still play too loose in a lot of spots, but especially back then, man, I was going nuts. <laughs> but pl- yeah, plugging some of those leaks would have been huge, you know, like you have any, I can hands, imagine. any hands in your memory bank that you shudder to think about now. Oh gosh, man. Uh, there was, there was plenty of hands where I've just like back before, like the, 
all the backdoor draws were a thing, just like blasting it in on the flop phrasing with backdoors and calling with like zero equity because like I put Hamane's king sort of thing. Right. Not yeah. think not thinking in ranges, just like thinking I think he has ace high. I will win this <laughs> later. I don't know how. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, I know, like thinking back to my career, I used to call it um, trying to fit a round peg into a square hole where I would be playing super well and then like all of a sudden I my brain would just go insane and it's like I'm going to win this pot. And then I would like punt off, you know, three to 5K and just kind of walk away from the table scratching my head like, why did I do that again? Why, why am I doing that? Like it took me many punts to kind of rein it in and realize like, okay, let's figure this out so that we stop feeling miserable punting off like 700 big blinds in these spots that no human right. would ever consider bluffing here or should ever consider bluffing. And yet here you are again, um, <laughs> feeling like an idiot, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I distinctly remember back then having almost these like feels like out of body experiences where you're just like your brain is like why am I betting right now like why yeah. I should not go for I should fold and then you're like watching your hand put chips in yeah, yeah. watching I, it from above yeah yeah almost like I know this is a bad idea but I'm doing it and that's I would say if I was to give my young self some like very practical advice it would be have a purpose for the actions that you're taking like there are so many button clicking right where you're just you're doing something because it sounds like a thing to do like i'm betting because betting is appealing or because it's like fulfilling as opposed to checking or but having a purpose behind your actions at the poker table is just like that's when like things really start to unlock you're you're not just doing things to do things you're actually having a purpose for sure i i don't know why i just remembered a hand that i played against vanessa selps maybe 2005 or so talk about button clicking she uh we were, we were friends. Um, I visited her in Foxwoods and, you know, she wanted to play poker. We're playing at the same table. We had 5k. And I remember just a massive pot that was probably 25% of my net worth at the time. Like I had probably a 20k roll with 5k on the table. And I remember we just get involved in this hand that I can't even remember all of the action. I think it started because somebody posted, like it all started because of a poster. Like, Somebody posted and then somebody like raised out of turn, right? And, and so they rate, it wasn't their action. And like I see Vanessa limp in and then like I limp behind and like it's like I knew what was going to happen. It was like, like I could see the future. So the dude that raises out of turn, he like, he's like, oh, sorry about that. He takes it back. It gets around to him and he raises now and like Vanessa back raises right mm-hmm. behind me. And I'm like, oh, I know. I know she's, she's full of it. shit. Like she's full of shit. So I <laughs> back four bet with like nine, 10 off and the flops like queen nine deuce. And somehow I end up putting in just mountains of chips knowing she has a set. Like I like min raise the turn and ship the river. And in my head, I know she has a set. And like even telling you this story, I see myself like out yeah. of my body, like thinking, yeah. what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Like the plan was pretty good in the beginning, but it's, you're taking it too far, <laughs> way too far. And then I shipped the river and like her words are just burned into my brain. I think it may have PTSD, but she just said, I'm not good enough to fold this. I, I'm not good enough to fold this. If you have three Queens, you have three Queens and calls and like shows us a set. And I'm just like <laughs> walking away from the table. <laughs> like, why did I do that? But yeah, that's that's a hand that like comes to my mind relatively early on in my career that was like, oh my God, Brad. Like I I actually thinking back on it, I think like the preflop stuff was fairly clever, but once you get deeper in the decision tree, it's like, dude, you just gotta pump the brakes at some point, man. If there's someone to go for it against this Vanessa though, <laughs> come on. <laughs> uh, there is she wasn't she wasn't even this was like pre you know pre Vanessa punt days? No, well, yes, pre-public Vanessa punt days, right? Where, <laughs> like, I remember even after that, she sent me a message on AOL Instant Messenger. That's how long ago this was about her being on the ESPN final table and, like, they're recording it with WSOP. She's like, Brad, sweat me, sweat me. And I'm, like, watching it online, and it was the year that she, like, four or five bet jams deuce five suited <laughs> right in the aces. 
and like has a catastrophic bust. And I think that was sort of like where, uh, you know, the punty Vanessa came from, but like, even still back then, you know, there was something about her that I realized she was going to be one of the stars of poker. She just, she was too smart, too good, too clever to be anything less. Yeah. Vanessa's great. Great for the game. And now I just told a, a super long story about me, but so it finally sticks, right? You, you build up your bankroll, it sticks. What would you say is the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey? I, w- I would say the most unexpected thing has been finding a lot of community that I didn't expect in poker. Um, so when I got into poker, it was very selfish pursuit, right? Like I was pursuing money, bankroll, and like you're young, you're pursuing fame. You're like, I'm going to be famous poker player and awesome. And really like I want a world series poker bracelet and I'm like, that's it. It was very unsatisfying. Um, so recently I've found a lot more, I've been more intentional about pursuing friendships, um, in poker and really like enjoying the people I see every day for sure. And that's been much more fulfilling. Like I really feel like I, I have, uh, I guess more purpose at my workplace instead of just a solely self absorbed pursuit. I agree. Uh, I've said it many times on my show that the few years that I spent living at the commerce, what stands out to me the most is not the big pots that I won and the big pots that I lost is the friends that I made those relationships, hanging out, playing basketball uh, at commerce with a bunch of grinders, you know, going to, going downtown to LA and drinking and having fun. Like all those things are what I remember. And like, it's so easy to forget that this journey of showing up and grinding at the casino 10 to 12 hours a day, you're spending your life doing this. So you may as well have fun, right? You may as well enjoy the process of being there and, you know, the fellowship of the folks that you play against and build those relationships because like, who wants to be miserable spending thousands of hours pursuing a game like poker? Just- yeah. I mean, even for if you play recreationally once a week, like, man, your you're once a week for fun game is going to be so much better when you get to joke with the guy sitting across the table from you. I think Rex do a great job at having fun, though, for yeah. the most part. Like, honestly, the more I play poker, the more I'm like, the guys that get to show up and not sweat the money and just have a good time and, like, if they want to get better – They'll try to get better for fun. You know, like those are the guys that are winning. <laughs> for I don't sure. care if they're losing in the game. Those are the guys that have the most fun and they're like gambling responsibly. Yeah, those are the winners. Exactly. Like, I think I, I, I've said it a bunch on this show. Like if you want to improve at poker, you have to do the work and it's not sexy and it's not fun and it's dirty. Just doing all of that work to improve your poker game. However, if you just want to have fun and show up and gamble, and put forth the minimum effort, there's nothing wrong with that. Nope. Like there is absolutely nothing wrong because you're having fun. And like you said, those are the people that are winning the most, right? Like mm-hmm. I think back to, you know, some billionaires that I play against that play every hand and they're probably losing $2,000 an hour while they play, but they're having fun. They're enjoying the process and there's, there, there's something to admire in that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, poker's a game people play for different reasons so for sure you've heard me talk early and often about how improving your awareness while you're playing cards so that you make better decisions in the moment and notice trouble spots that merit deeper consideration is one of the most valuable things you can do to make more money on the felt in my conversation with the only four-time wpt main event champion ever darren elias He told me that his ability to shut out all of the distractions in the world and fully focus on making great decision after great decision is his superpower he most attributes to his success. And you cannot improve your awareness at the tables without being fully present. When you learn how to stay fully in the moment on the green felt, you can finally have a clear path to becoming the absolute best version of yourself, which leads me to Jason Sue. Jason is one of the foremost authorities on the planet when it comes to playing poker with presence. As a matter of fact, he even wrote the book on it. Here's a direct quote from Nick Howard at Poker Detox on Jason's ability to help you stay focused. Quote, Jason's work is a new paradigm in poker and performance. End quote. 
And these aren't just empty words. Nick has put his money where his mouth is by hiring Jason to coach up the Poker Detox crew. And as a loyal listener of Chasing Poker Greatness, you know by now that I would not be promoting anything I didn't 100% believe would improve your poker skills and your life. So if you want to master your emotions and perform at your peak with presence while doing battle in the arena, you'd be doing yourself a grave disservice if you didn't check out Jason's work at PokerWithPresence.com. One final time, that's PokerWithPresence.com. So what does your process look like now for regularly improving? I'm definitely, I've gotten pretty on the lazy side, definitely in the last uh, probably couple years. But I do try to study once a week and I'm in a chat group, uh, like a Slack group, with uh, just like five poker players that we kind of just share hand histories, give input. Um, So that's kind of my more day-to-day one. And then try to get once a week of studying like pretty seriously with uh, a solver, just going over a couple spots that I've played to seeing some more theory work. I will, let me ask you this. Back in the day when, you, you know, you're on fire with this pursuit, how much did you discuss poker, like poker strategy with your friends or your coworkers when you were a dealer? Yeah, I mean, like poker consumed me when I was first getting into it. It was, it was the only thing I was interested in, really. You know, I was like on two plus two posting hands all the time. I'd check it every day. I would talk about a hand I played every day. I would talk to my coworkers. I would talk to people at the casino, you know, your poker friends. Um, yeah, it was, and I, I thought about poker every day. I remember falling asleep in my like studio apartment in my computer chair, watching card runners videos. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was what I did when I was that age. You know, I was just like so infatuated with the game. Um, but yeah, it definitely, it, it is not like that anymore. And it is definitely feels like more of a job and more of a duty. Um, but I do, I do still genuinely enjoy the game. Yeah, I tried. I remember there was a point where I tried to say, I wasn't going to say that I was going to go grind or go work anymore because it had, that has a negative connotation in my mm-hmm. mind. I would just say that I was going to go play cards and just try to use that language as something positive that I enjoy doing. But in the beginning, it, it's necessary to be so obsessed and be like, this is the only thing I want to talk about, right? Because you're, you're studying, but it doesn't feel like study, right? Like you can't put 2006 version of Brad in a room with, you know, 2009 or 2010 version of Chase and then not discuss poker. They're just going to sit there and talk about poker for 12 hours straight I would never think of it as studying. I would think of it as just super fun. <laughs> like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm learning. I'm growing, right? And I, yeah, and that's where, like, having friends in the poker world, it's like, yeah, this is like the water cooler talk for us, you know? Or you have, like, tennis friends or whatever. You talk about tennis. That's fine. You have girlfriends. You're like, oh, did you see Tiger? You know, that's fine. You can talk about that stuff. And it's just, it should be an enjoyable part of it, talking poker, talking shop with the boys and stuff. I agree. I think that like the word study is another one of those words like work that may mm-hmm. have a negative connotation to us. And it's like, man, you just discuss hand histories at a high level with somebody else. Like that's studying. Like, yeah, you're I, learning, I will right? say a lot of people like sort of talk about poker and think it's studying when it's really like, dude, you're just, you're just like getting positive reinforcement. <laughs> you're not really studying yes. unless you're in a very critical intentional group of people that are like, let me pick apart this hand you played. It's just a lot of yes men patting you on the back saying, oh, this stuff beat. And that's not studying. That's just consoling. Yeah, you need somebody that's going to be honest, that plays poker at a high level, that can give you constructive feedback. Hence hence why people get coaching in the first place, right? Right. Um, and, and I will say that like the leaps in my game are very rarely from talking to people. It's mostly through like theoretical work that I can maybe then I can go take that to people and like work through it with them. But the, the true study where you improve your game by leaps and bounds comes from like hard study, not from passively talking to someone. For sure. It's, it's digging deep, especially nowadays. It's looking at software, 
looking at mass database analysis, understanding tendencies, looking at you know population ranges, population line frequencies, if they're underbluffed, overbluffed, all of all of those very specific things. And even online, when you post a hand, like people in the poker world, it feels like they've always had this amazing ability to sound smart, but be full of shit. <laughs> like <laughs> as somebody that's, you know, played poker at a high level for a while, I would read like hands on two plus two, where it's like standard agreed. And then like five people agree. And on somebody's analysis, that sounds super smart that I just like totally disagree with, but don't want to put my opinion because like it feels overwhelming, you know, to basically disagree with somebody and then get all the feedback. And it's like, ugh, what's the point now? Right. Never. A lot of people are afraid of looking dumb. And that's like one thing about improving. If you're afraid to look dumb, man, you're not going to post the hand histories. You're not going to talk about the hands where you like probably made a mistake or you're going to like sort of justify it in the way you tell the hand or, you know. Yeah. And even I noticed this in my, my Skype group. When I first got into coaching, we would discuss hands with my students and there would be like seven or eight guys in there. And they would ask me a question and I would just say, I don't know. Like they would ask, ask for my opinion. I'm like, I don't know. And like, they would come to me privately and they're like, man, I really like it when you say, I don't know. Like Mm. it it feels genuine. And I'm like, well, yeah, I don't know many, many things when it comes to poker. I can't answer questions. Now I'll do the work to try to find the best answer that I can find. But like, don't be afraid of not knowing the answer because most of the time we don't have a concrete answer. We don't know. and Take it especially for me, that hand with Vanessa that I played, I felt like I looked like an idiot. I felt stupid. And I have felt that way thousands of times in my career. I could go in my database, dredge up 20 hand histories where I can go, what the fuck was I thinking? And you know, would feel instantly ashamed of. But you have to take chances. You know, The beauty of taking a chance in poker and doing something that might make you look dumb is that you get to start learning from those spots in the decision tree where people otherwise just pass them up. And even if you lose like a buy-in at two five, so you lose 500 bucks, you can a lot of times gain wisdom that makes you thousands of dollars over the long run. If you're not afraid of looking stupid and putting yourself in a ridiculous spot in -hmm. the first place. And that's why when we're talking about shot taking, that's a big part of it. Like you're going to be playing against tougher competition and your leaks are like, you're going to, your leaks are going to be laid bare in some, when you shot take sometimes or the things you're insecure, like you tighten up in this spot. Oh, why am I doing that? Am I not sure about this play? Um, so that's where shot taking can kind of eliminate some of that too. Agreed. Or you like ship the river on a bluff that you're, super confident about and just get snapped off by like bottom pair yeah. and you're like oh what just happened <laughs> what what just happened to me right that only happens when you're you're playing against higher competition then you get to learn and sort of reverse engineer like what must have they have been thinking like to own my soul like that yeah totally when you think about joy in your career playing cards what's the first memory that comes to mind joy hmm um, I mean, winning, winning a world series event was definitely probably the, the peak of, of my career in terms of accomplishments. But when I think of joy, I really think of the, the early years of like grinding with one or two buddies playing like two to 20 spread limit game. <laughs> that was really like the most enjoyable times of playing poker is when I really didn't, we didn't know what we were doing, but man, we were trying playing and we were loving the ride that was probably the most enjoyable times of poker for me i agree i I love all those early times of diving in uh making a 50 dollar deposit on party and dusting it off but like would just sit in front of the computer for whatever you know 14 15 hours didn't matter and i loved it and it was fun those days are long gone <laughs> of sitting in front of a computer for 12 to 15 hours and just loving it every single second or every other second of my day thinking about, oh man, if I'm going to eat, like I wish I was playing poker right now. I wish that I was sitting at a table grinding, right? Those, you can't beat those early days. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great memories. I mean, 
It's kind of what fed us for a long time. For that sure. Passion, pursuit. Something had to. <laughs> Something had to. The opposite question. When you think about pain in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Mm, I would say, so we didn't quite get to it, but um, I sort of came up playing poker and then I moved to, um, from Washington to Colorado to be close to family when my grandma was passing. And Colorado had like some decent poker games, but it was, uh, anyway, I, I moved there to be close to family and then essentially went broke while I was there and had to like give up playing poker. And I just went back to dealing. Um, so that was probably one of the more painful ones of being out of action and really like for a time, at least losing that dream of playing poker. Um, like as for a living, even like I really couldn't even play in my off time. I was so broke. Um, what so happened? Went, like, what, what what was your bankroll when that went down? So it was kind of a, a series of events where it was, I moved to Colorado and then it was, it was right after Black Friday. So then after Black Friday, you know, like Poker Stars uh, shipped us some money. The money in full tilt was locked up and online poker, which I thought was going to be a part of my income in Colorado, that was gone. So now I'm just left with these, like, you know, they had a, like, 30-60 limit hold'em game. They had a $100 max bet, and you really couldn't play true no limit. And my bankroll just got depleted. And so I I knew I wasn't going to go completely broke playing poker. So I got to a point where I was like, okay, it's time to get a job. I've got $10,000. It's time to get a job. And, uh, yeah, I just went back to work and had to swallow it and and, and just give up poker for a time. Was 30-60, had you been playing limit? before then or did you just jump into limit yeah i actually had quite a bit of experience um in washington uh there's seattle area there's a big uh limit hold'em scene um so i had some experience and 3060 game is not a bad game but limit hold'em is not my best game either um same <laughs> yeah and and the swings can be big in a 3060 game you know you can whew, you can have a 20k downswing like at you know for sure go quick so um and then online poker was gone, had some money stuck on full tilt, not a ton, but like, I think like $8,000, which mattered pretty good. Yeah. It's a pretty big chunk. Um, so all this stuff happens and I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna, gonna get a job. And that was kind of, that was a bummer. And honestly, now with this pandemic stuff, I, I don't know when the end of pandemic is near and it's almost like another situation of, I'm, I'm considering doing other things because I don't know when live poker is going to be back. And I mean, I, I don't see myself sustaining our lifestyle in the way and making a living playing online or playing. There's like a two, five game in New Hampshire. I mean, so for a lot of us right now, I think it's like, Ooh, let's reassess what we're doing. And this might be a time to look around and maybe have to mourn playing poker for a living or, consider a career change. I'm, I'm thinking about it. Really? Uh, what would you, what would you do? What would that look like? Man, I have no idea. I'd probably <laughs> go back to school for some, I have a high school education. So this is where like, I've, I've talked to my buddy when, when we were living together and pursuing poker and I'm like, I've no, I don't really have a backup plan, man. I got <laughs> high school education. If I don't make it in poker, I'm, I'm just like, I mean, I could work at a casino again, but now I'd feel like a gut bunch too. So I don't know, man, I'm, maybe I'll go back to school. Maybe, maybe these casinos will open back up and we'll have, but one thing I'm worried about, if you don't mind us switching to pandemic talk, go, go for it, is the New Hampshire casinos are open and they get like two, five, some five, 10 games, but I really, it's like 45 minutes North of where I usually play. And I've seen surprisingly little, like crossover of player pools. Like I thought everyone would be coming up here. I'd see all my normal, the normal guys from the poker room, but like, I think a lot of people just aren't willing to play right now. So I think even if casinos opened up, I don't think that it would be back to normal. Where do you think they're playing at? Cause I'm sure they're playing somewhere. Yeah. I'm sure they're playing on some apps and maybe a couple home games, but I think a lot of people just aren't playing much, not willing to go out and at least play in a live setting. 
it's tough. What stake do you need to maintain life uh, to play online? Uh, online, I don't, I don't think I can beat like mid stakes online cash. I don't. I really don't know if I could. I'd have to put in a lot of work. Really playing hundred big blind, hundred big blind cash games. I put in so much work playing like three hundred to five hundred blinds deep that I'd have to like really learn how to play a hundred big blind cash game. I mean, I think I could, but I don't know. I don't know what the hourly is on like a one two no limit game. About fifty bucks an hour for if you're like for tabling or yeah for a good player. Yeah, I mean that seems like way easier than going back to school. <laughs> seems like a way easier path. Yeah, even fifty bucks an hour is like honestly not that appealing for sure. having having to put in a lot of work, having to grind like forty hours a week online. The problem is that it's hard to make $50 an hour in the real world, yeah. even, even with a college education, right? True. I've, I've encountered the same where it's like, ah, I'm sick of playing cards. I want to do something else. And I like look at what there is for me to do, what I'm qualified for, and I quickly realize, oh, I'm not qualified for a bunch and also... <laughs> I want to get paid way more than anybody's willing to pay me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's why poker is always like the fallback route, right? Right. And and when I'm considering things, it's like I'm probably going to always do at least for the the interim, like I'm going to do poker on the side for like most of my income anyway. So like going to school would be like going to school and playing poker. Sure. Um so it certainly wouldn't be an overnight like, oh, done with poker. I don't think I'll ever really be done with poker. You know? I hope not. I, I hope I won't yeah. either. Even but, if I have a full-time job, man, I'm, I'm going to fire it up after work a couple times a week for sure. Yeah, but the thing is, you get a full-time job, pandemic ends, casinos reopen, and all of a sudden you start doing the math in your head of, oh, my 1020 game's running again. I could start putting in 30 hours a week there and you know make my 150 an hour or however much your hourly rate is. And then the job is like, all right, job, I, I'm going to put you to the side for a while. Yeah. And this is where, uh, like now that we're starting family, like having stability is a big deal. It now, is. Poker has no stability. I have no paycheck. So yeah, looking at those hard decisions of how much do you value this? How much do you value stability? How much do you value a paycheck? I don't know. It's hard to quantify. I would say the reality is though, like the world doesn't seem very stable for anybody right now, no matter what job you have, you know, you you have a four year degree and a 10 to 15 year experience at a company they will let you go in a second when it comes to cutting costs across the board with the pandemic. So like really not just poker players, nobody's safe. Yeah, I'm very curious to see how, like, I know, like, they say, like, gambling industry is recession-proof, et cetera, but if we have a truly big recession, depression, I am curious to see how it affects poker. I don't, like, I don't remember poker ever being especially bad when it ran. Like, even during, like, the housing crisis and the meltdown in, like, 2009 and 10, like, people still are fondly looking back at, at those years in sure. the, po- the poker sphere where you know people in the real world were still struggling um so i don't know I, I don't know what it would do but i'm fairly confident that most places with an affluent a certain number of affluent people in society you'll be able to spread a 510 no limit every day of the week yeah yeah so i guess the question is like really like how do we get by until we're back running as usual and the problem is there's no timeline. Like talking to someone that used to work at the casino and they're like, I don't know if they're going to open in 2021. And I'm like, yikes, dude, that's, it's crazy to think that that could be how long we're waiting. We have, we have no idea. You know, all we have are guesstimations, right? Like everybody's all pumped about football season. And I'm just like watching Twitter going like, what, what are you talking about? Like what, evidence do we have that football is going to go off there is zero evidence that we're capable of kicking football off 
Like there's zero evidence that we're capable of even managing the pandemic and getting people to wear masks. Like the amount of people who are anti-mask, I'm learning a lot about society and people Mm -hmm. throughout this pandemic is like, and also the power of propaganda. I'm learning propaganda is so powerful and like, it's crazy how it determines the actions of a large number of people. And, you know, our country has not done a great job with leading people in a right way to clear up the pandemic Um, just from the top all the way down. It's Mm -hmm. just everything scattered and it's not, not a good situation. I think the only way the pandemic ends is either a, the vaccine is pretty clear. And then the second route would be some medication that exists on the market that effectively treats COVID-19 that they can prove and then replicate and then basically make available everywhere. Those are really the only two outs that we have. And the timeline for that is, you know, it could be another year. Like vaccines don't just happen overnight. They're, you know, five years is like the typical route. And another thing that I'm learning actually is how much we don't know. Like how much just as a species, humanity does not know and how long it can take us to solve this kind of problem because there are billions of dollars flooding in and the most brilliant minds humanity has that are collecting, trying to figure this out. And it is taking a long time to come up with any reasonable answers. Yeah, man, I I feel you on all that. And like, there is so much that we don't know. And, and this definitely has pushed me to lean on my faith in Christ that Jesus is going to reign through this pandemic it's going to rain if I have to leave poker for a while. Like, I'm going to be okay. Um, so it's, it's pushed me a lot, like, spiritually as well to lean on him more than ever. Um, man, it's a tough time for everyone, though. It's, it's really, really wild stuff we're going through. Yeah, it's scary. I mean, it's scary. It's tough. And it's, it, it's just, it's almost surreal watching TV shows and seeing a bunch, large group of people together just hugging each other and shaking Mm -hmm. everybody's hand. Like that's how we, this thing is just conditioned. At least me, I see this on TV and I'm like, Oh my God, like they're so close. (laughs) Why are you so close spread out? You know? But yeah, I, I hope, I hope that we can solve it. I know that eventually we will. It's just, you know, like you said, what's the, the total toll going to be and what's life going to look like afterwards. We'll see. We'll see. So, so you play mostly online cash. I've played both throughout my career, but especially for the last five years, it's been online cash. Yeah. Interesting. Do you live in the U.S.? I do. Where Where do you put in most of your volume? Ignition. Ignition now. And previously, I have played on the various apps that have floated around. Uh, Poker King, back when Poker... Or not Poker King, uh, Poker Master. Back when mm-hmm. Poker Master was really good right in the beginning, and then it fell apart with collusion and cheating and all sorts of bad stuff. And then I've, you know, hopped on lily pads to other various apps, testing them out. But Ignition has always had pretty good volume and stakes all the way up with a fair amount of, you know, recreational players that give a decent win rate to the regs. So I've stuck there. Okay. I, I'm, I might put in more volume. I played some on ignition during pandemic, but not a ton. Um, but I might, I might play a little bit more on there. The, uh, the online grind is fun, seeming more and more appealing in the like mass casino environment these days. So I, I would think, try more. I would think online MTTs too, right? Like you, you know, yeah. you, you've put in the work with MTTs. And I would think that like those guys are just skyrocketing as far as just the, the pure numbers. And there's probably a lot of opportunity playing them. It's not my thing personally, but I'm yeah. sure the opportunity is there. I've been so removed from tournaments for the last couple of years that I really haven't had much uh, draw back to it. But I do fire it occasionally. But the cash grind is like, I really want steady income right now. I yeah. don't want to like... You're trying to bink off something for 20K to like book a win this month or something. You know? For sure. It's, they're different animals. I would say that you've been in this game a long time. You 
have discussed strategy and theory and all of these things. I cannot imagine a world where you cannot beat at least 200 no limit, probably right this second. But especially if you just put in some energy, like you should be good to go in a month. Yeah, I'm probably underselling myself, but it's just something I haven't worked on a lot, the 100 big blind um, cash games. Yeah, there's no time like today, sir. (laughs) Um, True. Let's let's move to the lightning round here, and uh, we'll get you. It's not super lightningy, but I know I know you got to go get your kiddo right from school. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, foster home. We're uh, we got a kiddo this week till Saturday. Oh, nice, nice. That's a my my grandparents were foster parents, and I can say that there's no more selfless thing to do than help children who have an unstable home and. Mm. Yeah. So it's uh that's the work right there, the noble work. Yeah, it's a big need and it's yeah, pretty rewarding, pretty tough, but we enjoy it. For sure. It is is definitely both of those things. So if you could gift all poker players one book to read, what would it be and why? And it doesn't have to be about poker. Oh, it doesn't have to be about poker. Ooh, Ender's game. Ender's game. We are we are all playing online poker to win the war. Think about it. I haven't read Ender's Game, so I don't know. My audience knows. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about poker, not allowing COVID, because <laughs> this is the obvious answer right, right yeah. now, um, what would it be? Mm, change one thing. Um, <laughs> can I say no nits allowed? Sure. No, um, <laughs> uh, man. Yeah, I really, I really hate playing with nits. I would let's let's put a VPIP requirement on these games, okay? What do you what do you describe a nit? Like, let's describe a live nit. Who who is this person? The guy that just always has it, like always seat changing on. Okay, I don't mind people that play tight, but when you're like playing tight and taking every edge, you're like you'll seat change on the weak player. You're like always table selecting perfectly. You're like walking away when the guy's in the bathroom. It's like, oh. it's, it's all the little things that really just like, dude, you have an edge. You're playing so mega tight because you need an edge. You don't need every, like, uh, they just make the game miserable. It's not about playing tight. They just make the game miserable. They do. People go to the bathroom and like, they won't take their big blind. And like the game will just be on hold while yeah. somebody goes to the bathroom. And it's like, have you no shame? I can see you. This person knows what's going on. <laughs> like this isn't even online where you can't see somebody. Like you're right here. Like it's just your loss rate when it's like reg versus reg is never going to be super high. You're never going to be so totally outmatched versus a group of five regs that you're losing anything more than like whatever, five to 20 bucks an hour while this dude is in the bathroom for 10 minutes. So for $8, to save eight bucks, you're going to do this? <laughs> like, yeah. that is just incredible to me. Yeah, I guess wave the wand and give people some, like, poker savvy of, yeah, let's make it a fun environment. Let's not do the dumb things. Yeah, just like the the etiquette. I mean, exactly. I, again, going back to my commerce days, I've probably talked about this before, but, like, Garrett would be in a must-move table and, like, come to the game and, like, there would be a seat open. And I swear to God, I've never seen so many people change seats all at the same time. Like he would just stand there and watch and like somebody would move over here. And then the person who Garrett would go on the left of would move over there. And like, they would just, and like, inevitably he would be to my left because I'm just like, I have too much pride. I am not moving. I am not standing up here because I'm not going to let Garrett know how afraid of him that I am. I actually wasn't too afraid of him, but I don't love him being on my left. But like, man, like a guy comes to the table who's a losing player, a seat opens and dude just snap takes it right to his left. Like everybody knows what you're doing. Even the guy knows what you're doing. And it's just not a good look for poker. Yep. That kind of stuff that just makes the game unpleasant. Yeah. Irritates me. Me too. Especially in the live arena, which Mm -hmm. you inhabit. If you could erect a billboard, everybody's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does it say? Hmm. I don't know. It'd have to be some kind of meme, like make poker great again or something. 
yeah, I don't know. A billboard? Uh, no nits allowed? I don't know. Yeah, don't be a nit. <laughs> um, what's something the audience would be surprised to learn you're horrible at? Uh, surprised to learn I'm horrible at? Uh, discipline. Like, <laughs> I play so many hands just because I have no discipline. Like, honestly, I, I have... I have some significant leaks because I just like get out of line too much. Uh, It's definitely a misconception. People think I just play like perfectly. I play terribly some hands. So the misconception is thinking anybody ever plays perfectly. Like there's just, there's so many unknowns in this world, no matter who the crusher is that you're watching, they're just going to make significant mistakes. It's just a part of the game. Yeah, like Garrett's a great example. Garrett's one of the best, and he just has some bananas hands where he obviously played it terrible. For sure. I, I think that like a lot of times when Garrett played at Commerce, he was just maybe bored of the stakes or in a bad mood, but like he was not playing winning poker. <laughs> he was yeah. like three betting like 50% of hands, snap getting it in with like King Jack off and stuff like that. So like everybody, nobody's immune to it, right? We're, we're, we're human beings. We're emotional creatures. We're going to do silly stuff. We, we all have mental game issues. From what I've learned, every single one of us has some sort of mental game leak or many mental game leaks. So yeah, that's just, that's part of it. Just don't be afraid to look dumb. Look dumb and move on. Yep. Um, what's a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? Uh, foster care, I would say would be one for sure. Uh, we just became a foster home probably like three, four months ago. And uh, that's been something we've been very intentional about, felt very led to um, be a part of. Um, and there's a great need for it. Um, and it's really, yeah, like you said, important work um, and really hard work. But um, I'd encourage people to support foster care in whatever way they can. That doesn't always mean being a foster home. What does that mean then? Well, there's a lot of mentoring programs where um, might not be foster care, but a lot of kids need mentors. Um, there's a lot of mentoring programs out there. Um, there's ways that you can support foster families. Um, our church has a initiative where they'll, it's like a wraparound ministry for foster care. So, um, they coordinate with, uh, foster care, uh, with the state, like social workers. And if there's a home that's struggling, like, uh, this home, the mom needed uh, an elliptical and we had a uh, one in our basement that we haven't used because we're lazy. So, <laughs> so we, uh, we took an elliptical to her apartment and just set her up. Um, we'll run like meal trains for someone when they get a foster kid and they're just like jam packed busy. So it's just um, filling in the gaps, making sure. Yeah, nobody... Filling in the gaps, uh, you know, come, come alongside people that are maybe having uh, foster kids in their home. Um, yeah. There's well, a lot of things you can do. What would you say if anybody in the audience is interested in fostering kids, some resources you could point them to, to get them on the right path? If they're interested, um, if they're, if they're local to Boston area, uh, fostering hope, new England is a, uh, they do a lot of training, trauma training, really, really valuable. If, uh, if you want to be a foster home, I think, I mean, the state has pretty low bar of what they require because they, they need homes. But this is like, if you really want to be equipped for some of the trauma these kids have been through, that's really good. It's a lot. There's, yeah, I've, I've seen the paperwork and I've seen it firsthand. And the things that young children can go through are oftentimes pretty unimaginable to folks that it hasn't happened to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you want to f- support them financially too, Fostering Hope New England, um, they're they're a really great uh, resource. They provide a lot of training, a lot of times free. Um, they like just give people free training, but um, yeah, really good resource. Awesome, man. Uh, you guys in the audience, check that out if you want to look into foster care more deeply. And final question: Where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? Ah, uh, probably Instagram is my, uh, spot where I'm the most, just my name, Chase Bianchi, Twitter, Chase underscore Bianchi. Ooh, tricky. I know. Someone <laughs> stole it. Mixing it up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's about it. Cool, man. Thank you very much for your time and your energy. It's been a blast. Love having you on. 
I want to have you back on in six months or so when you're crushing the online world and, you know. You've inspired me a little bit. I'm going to uh, maybe consider playing a little more online. So Get cool. in there, man. That's your thing. Get in there. Ender's game online right now. <laughs> See you, Thanks, man. Thanks, Brad. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.